Where did you go? Where the Virgin's been appearing. I didn't see a thing. Welcome to the Magic Lantern Podcast, an ongoing informal discussion of the films we love and the things we love about them. I am Erica Long. And I am Cole Rowling. Each episode of the Magic Lantern will be devoted to one film that we alternately select and we will discuss why it is significant to us. We are at episode 25, which is Cole's choice. And Cole, what have you decided on? My selection this time is La Cienega. From 2001, written and directed by Lucrecia Martel, starring Graciela Borges, Mercedes Moran, Sofia Bertolotto, and Andrea Lopez. It is about the life of two women and their families in a small provincial town in northwestern Argentina, the Salta region, which is very religious and socially conservative. We usually go through the plot of these movies and discuss tangential ideas as we go, This one, while I do have it outlined here in the basic chronology of events, plot is not so central to this film as it is to many others that we've discussed so far. And I would like to point out that some descriptions of this film have labeled it almost as plotless. Mm -hmm. And I disagree with that because there are very significant things that take place. Yes, it is not a straightforward narrative, as many of us might be used to, but I think that the term plotless gets used to suggest that a film like this is not as accessible as it in fact is. It is also not aimless. Good point. And I'll be harping on that a little bit okay. more because a couple of things have happened this week to bring that that idea into sharper relief. Well, like what, for example? Well, earlier today, one of my coworkers was talking about the recent release, The Lobster, and her point basically was as she sort of slumped over a desk. It's so weird. I couldn't handle it. And I think that these terms, plotless, odd, strange, different, art house even, can get thrown around to create almost a distance between the film and the viewer and set up people who might have otherwise gone in with an open mind Mm -hmm. into thinking that they're going to see something that's more challenging or too weird or too over their head. Or possibly this viewer, maybe it just wasn't the right fit for her. Weird is a red flag word for me immediately when anybody is describing something to me. And to me, it is one of those words that tells me a lot more about the person using it than about the thing that they are describing. True. And right after she said that, I did say, oh, that sounds right up my alley. (laughs) I know about the film already. I don't know that I'm necessarily articulating my point very well, but hearing this film in particular called Plotless makes me kind of crazy because truly amazing things happen and things that alter the course of the characters' lives. Well, the first thing you are aware of is the weird sounds. I'm kidding. (laughs) so weird. I couldn't handle it. (laughs) The first thing you're aware of when this film begins is sound. The soundscape of this thing is fantastic. And that goes from before we see any characters to long after we see any characters in the credits. The soundscape rolls on for about four minutes longer than any visible action in the film. And I was reading that the director, Lucrecia Martel, doesn't typically storyboard her films, but she does do a soundscape 
for them. And I think that that was very clear. And I can't recall another film in recent memory that strikes me as much with the soundscape as this. And I wrote a series of adjectives. Would you like to hear some sure. of them? What are those? Messy, shaky, fleshy, crepey, stretchy, zombie, which is not an adjective, but it ends in that sound. Did you say crepey? Crepey, as in the skin ah, that okay. you see. Rainy, glassy, clanky. <laughs> well, the tapestry of sound is thunder or gunshots, often indistinguishable from one another, ice clinking in glasses, and this horrible decaying noise when they drag these patio chairs across the concrete that surrounds the pool because they cannot be bothered to simply pick them up. I will say another parallel to present day. I do go to the pool almost every day and I hear that same sound. <laughs> and these people at my pool are not part of a bourgeois South American clan, as far as I know, but they still do the same thing. Well, the people that we are introduced to in the film are an Argentinian family. There are a large group of adults gathered around a fetid, brackish swimming pool that no one would want to get in. Well... That no one in their right mind would want to get in. Okay. That's not a child, maybe. Well, okay. You want to get in this thing? I want to get in every body of water. Okay. I did fall into the mall fountain when I was six. <laughs> were you trying to just steal pennies? The co were people throwing coins in there to make wishes that you were going in to retrieve? Or? No, I and I had a winter coat on. I just sort of fell in. <laughs> but it was still kind of fun because I was walking on the edge of it. Because I wanted to be really close to it. Sure. Well, they don't plan on getting in this pool, these people. They are all about leisure and lounging and minimal activity. You mentioned zombie in your description in your list of adjectives slash nouns. And much like your notes, I made a note to myself in that same section, specifically saying marching like the dead. And it very much struck me like that. It was this parade of broken down, middle-aged, sagging, withered flesh moving listlessly nowhere, shot in these odd mid-torso to upper thigh close-ups, showing you the absolute worst part of these people in explicit detail as they slouch across the patio, dragging these chairs, looking for a place to lay down and become even more inebriated than they are. If I was to make a list of words, all of mine would end in action, which is ironic because this is inaction, putrefaction, stupefaction. And I think it's interesting to note that in the very brief opening credits, the credit typography itself is more like a horror film to me. It's really creepy. It disappears and shakes, and it was not what I was expecting for this film. It's not what you expect, but it makes perfect sense once you get to the end, because, again, as I was making my notes about this, the more I noted atmosphere and story elements, it added up to a contemporary gothic to me. You've got death and decay, a cursed family, madness, foreboding atmosphere, women in distress. Odd familial relationships mm -hmm. as well. So I think it very much qualifies as a bizarre horror film. It's not traditional horror narrative. It's not traditional in any sense. But it has so many of those things in it that it could definitely qualify on paper. 
So the credits make perfect sense. And don't get me started on the ending right now, unless you want me to get really angry with you (laughs) for the rest of the podcast. Another completely non-traditional element is that we never see most of these older people in this opening section again. It's a pretty bravura thing to do, I think, from a first-time director or a first-time feature director to open with such an extended sequence of characters we are never introduced to and never see again. It's hard not to get into this conversation already because I have so many questions I want to ask you about what you thought when you saw this, but it seems like it would require us to go into the story a little bit more before I start asking them. The thing you made me think of which I want you to ruminate on a little bit, which we will come back to, is how long did it take you before you felt like you understood the relationships of the people in the movie? The people we were introduced to, who they were in relation to one another, what the tenor of that relationship was. When did you feel like you had a firm grasp on those things? Not yet. (laughs) For the most part, and I'm being facetious, but all the questions that I wrote down for you are... Of that same vein. Okay. So it's deliberately ambiguous. Mm -hmm. It's not spelled out for us. And I think it's open to a little bit of interpretation as well. Well, we're introduced to the family in three separate locales here at the beginning. We have the pool where the adults are gathered. We have the interior of the house, mostly the bedrooms, where the girls are gathered. And then we have the hills where the majority of the boys are running around hunting game and shooting rifles. Everything in these opening sequences is torpor. It is oppressive heat and humidity and listlessness and inactivity. The adults at the pool, obviously. But the girls sleeping inside the house as well in the middle of the day with nothing better to do. The boys are out being active at least, but where we find them is literally in a bog with a cow stuck in the mud, unable to free itself. And the suggestion, at least to me, was that the cow is going to die. They might shoot the cow, or it might just expire gradually, slowly, painfully. But to continue with our idea about this being able to fit either within a horror or at least a gothic genre, we're presented with pretty horrifying things right away. The imagery is decidedly unpleasant, throughout the movie. But in this case, the cow stuck in the mud, I think, is the only misstep for me tonally. It is the only metaphor she uses that is so on the nose. I get it. We're mired in this thing and we're never going to escape. The only way out is to die. It seemed a little too obvious. It was the only storytelling element that I thought, oh, first time director. It didn't strike me that way. I don't think I was savvy enough to read that much into it. I took it immediately as the countryside is so close. Provinciality is so close to this. What we learn is sort of a country house, a vacation home. But the reality of the sickly aspects of nature is so close that they can't be escaped. So... There's no sense that this is the ritzy family with some higher station than anyone else. They're just as mired, I guess, in the mud, but really tied to the land and those farming aspects that are so central to daily life there. So they could pretend to be something, 
but they are in fact not that thing. Two things you said in that that I want to respond to. Specifically, first, this sickly cycle of the natural elements that you mentioned. I found this great, very Herzogian quote from Lucrecia Martel about just this very thing. How she refuses to accept the commonly held romantic idea that nature rhymes with harmony. And that is a horrific idea to a lot of people, especially if you are coming from an Argentine Catholic background where everything is order and God has a plan. And God has created nature and it is all divine. The second thing you're saying about their station in life, their social status, I think it's higher than we might assume because of the economic and social climate in Argentina at this time. 2001, when this was made, is essentially the terminal point of Argentina's economic collapse. And a swimming pool is an incredible luxury in these times. And so anyone who can afford to have that and let it go to waste, especially, is someone who is a conspicuous consumer, for sure. Definitely conspicuous consumers, but they make a point to say they can't afford to fix the pump or the filter in the pool. That's why it's so disgusting at this point. And they also talk about these peppers, which seem to be their source of income, Mm -hmm. and that they can really only find one seller for them. So I think that those lines are getting really blurry, that the step from middle class to low middle class to low class gets smaller and smaller and smaller. Well, there's a ton of class stuff in this too, so it's interesting that you bring this up. Yeah, there are so many tangents I could go off on right now without going further into the film. I think we need to set up a little bit more of the situation before we explore those ideas, but you are making me think of 10 million questions I want to talk to you about. Well, shut up and tell us where to go next instead. The first major incident we have is at the pool. Mecha, the matriarch of the family that lives in the country house, is rounding up the drink glasses, stumbles and falls, and cuts her chest pretty severely, so much so that she has to be taken to the hospital. It's a terrible accident. Mm -hmm. It looks terrible. It looks like it feels terrible. It seems very serious. I mean, she's covered in blood. She's bleeding from specific areas that are quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. And already, the class issues that you mentioned come into play. None of the adults lift a finger to help her, which is emphasized because it moves to this shot Looking down on the entire scene, it looks like a crime scene. Everything in this thing looks like a crime scene. Every bedroom, bodies are scattered all over the place, limbs dangling off of things. If you didn't know better, you might confuse characters in this thing for corpses half the time. None of the adults lift a finger to help her, so the children and the servants come to her aid, and she is immediately resistant to the Indian servants offering her assistance in any way. She is not about to lower herself to be helped by someone she considers lesser. And while no one ostensibly seems to particularly care that this accident has occurred, she's more concerned with whether the housekeeper is stealing. Mm -hmm. They're concerned in that there are fewer glasses to have drinks out of, maybe. Just like in the previous episode, where you pointed out that Marion in Psycho is... A terrible monster because she was talking about boiling a steak. <laughs> Some people, I think, in the audience might react in the same way watching these folks put ice cubes in their wine. Mm. 
Well, if for no other reason, that's a brilliant device because it adds one more layer to that really effective sound design, this constant clinking in these glasses. And I think it's a really interesting and telling detail as well that these aren't people who are connoisseurs. Mm -hmm. They're just sucking down whatever is available to them. And the colder, the better. Which only underlines in more stark relief this idea that Martell keeps putting out there. Nothing is a relief. Nothing can be cold enough. Nothing is ever comfortable. No one can sleep. Relief does not come. In keeping with your analysis of this as a horror film, sort of, what were you feeling throughout this entire opening sequence? I know a lot of people mention how uncomfortable and tense the entire film makes them, but specifically this opening, did it strike you the same way? I don't recall it striking me like that. I think I was looking for those things which might ground me. Who is this? What is their motivation? I was still in that more forward narrative idea, mm -hmm. even though you had mentioned to me to let that go before I started. I still, though, look for those elements of story that will keep me connected to what's happening. I do know, though, I was feeling the tumult, I guess, more than anything. Not necessarily tension, but this is clearly not a household that's in order. So as we go in search of your through line, we move from the country home, which is called La Mandragora, the Mandrake. I love the names of these places. I don't have nearly as many reservations with the overt symbolism of the place names as I do with the cow, just because the words are so beautiful. The country estate is named after the Mandrake root, which is very symbolic. It is a narcotic. It is prized for its aphrodisiac qualities, its hypnotic qualities, its sedative qualities. Very telling. Does it also mean dirty as hell? Because <laughs> that's what the house looks like at all times. It does, technically, I guess, because it is a root and a really interesting root. When you pull the root from the ground, the roots look like little people. And so they have frequently been considered familiars or demons or sprites because they look so human-like. My huge, duh, light bulb just went off when I remembered that it plays a role in one of the Harry Potter books. Oh, okay. So I should have known that. Sorry, and I feel embarrassed to have even said that, but whatever. That's okay. Thank you, J.K. Rowling. In the Harry Potter books, it's not in Spanish, right? So... No, the, the Mandrake, though, uh, you know what? I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> okay. Well, we move from the Mandrake to the city where Tali lives, and the city is called La Cienega from the title. It means the swamp. And that word could be applied to every single thing, person, and place in this movie. But particularly, it is also the name of the town where one significant part of this family lives. And again with the confusing relationship thing, who is Tali to Mecha? I'm only going off of what they sort of describe later where I wasn't sure if she was almost a cousin or in fact a cousin or if you're also from smaller towns or closer-knit families, as much of a family friend as becomes family. Mm. I think almost a cousin is exactly what they say in the film itself. But I have no idea if they actually share any blood relations. But they've clearly been entwined in each other's lives for a long oh, time, which we'll learn years. more about mm -hmm. as we go on. 
we pick up in the city with a truck full of some young kids throwing water balloons at passers-by, including two little girls who are clearly dressed for carnival. They've got makeup on and the fancy dress and adornment that would suggest that carnival is coming. And so the girls run into the house that we learn is Tally's house. Already the environment is 180 degrees different. It is bursting with life. There's activity. There is not this stagnant atmosphere that is so pervasive. There's actual activity and exuberance in complete contrast to where we just came from. It's also, even with all of this activity, quite orderly and clean and tidy, unlike Mecha's house. And Tali's children are younger. They're young kids. I would say everybody is easily under 10 years old, whereas Mecha's girls are in their young teens, mm -hmm. middle teens. It was a little difficult for me to get a fix on their age, but clearly older than. So we've got what almost feels to me like a different generation. Tali, even though we know she must be close to Mecha's age, Tali seems quite a bit younger to me. I don't know if that was your impression as well or it just was. a feeling. Yes, Mecha definitely has this air of the ruined matriarch of the family, the top of the pecking order, essentially. Or in another story, she would be the madwoman in the attic, practically. <laughs> She's a couple of steps away from that, and Tali is all risk efficiency to mm -hmm. me. We're introduced to this idea very clearly that the urban life and the rural life are distinctly different and separate, but it's a little more complex than that. Well, they're constantly overlapping because... The more ostensibly well-to-do family are living in this rural setting temporarily. This mm -hmm. is their getaway. While the family in the urban setting are the ones who are more poor. While the urban to rural family are employing very rural Indians as workers and so entwined in their lives as well. So I, I don't really have a clear answer to that. It's just constantly going back and forth and... Again, these situations aren't spelled out for us, so I don't know who has more money. I don't know who's doing better than the other, who has more education. Mm. Tali's house is where we're introduced to the youngest cast member, Luchi, the youngest son. And in miniature parallel to Mecha's situation, he cuts his leg, which necessitates a visit to the doctor as well. Before that moment, we have a detail that I also love because this movie is full of interesting details, and that is the little girls singing into the fan, <laughs> which I remember doing when I was little. Robot voice? Mm -hmm. Did you have a signature song that you sang into the I, fan? I don't think so. Probably Like a Virgin, <laughs> if, I had to, if I had to guess at the top of my head. So Luchi is injured. Mecha is injured. The family members are exchanging these series of phone calls to keep each other updated on the status of these injuries and and making a plan to all assemble. We do see that the families are in the same hospital at the same time, and one of the characters, Veronica, Tally asks her if she wants to come stay at Tally's house instead of at Mecha's house. And I felt like that was really relatable, that look on her face of, yes, please, get me <laughs> out of here. And again, that layering of these families intertwined because she's not exactly a daughter she's a family friend and so you have yet another layer of sort of cousin almost family but somehow inextricably bound i wasn't sure i couldn't tell because she definitely looks different than everybody else mm -hmm. so i thought 
that would be odd casting if she's supposed to be one of the daughters, but it makes perfect sense that no, she's just some other family friend or distant cousin or who knows what. Well, it makes it a little more palatable a little later on to know that when Jose flirtingly sticks his leg in the shower with her and you realize, oh, they are not brother and sister. I don't, are we for sure that they're not brother and sister? That is that a definite? I'm pretty sure, yes. Okay. I wasn't sure at that point if they were not brother and sister. And I think that if they are, that makes that scene even more interesting or makes that conflict even more interesting. Because of the odd tension that it creates in yeah. the viewer or in the character or both? Both. I mean, any suggestion of incest is a pretty fascinating thread to follow. But if they're not, it's still fascinating. Well, those tensions are definitely there among a lot of the family members, it feels like. I read it the other way, though. But Martel does do an exceptional job of keeping the viewer off balance. I can completely see your reading of it, too. Because I thought, well, maybe she is one of the daughters, but by a different man, mm. you know, or who even knows. But one of the questions I wrote down for myself very early on was, is everybody sleeping together? And by sleeping, I mean having sex with each other, or do they want to? It's, it's something that I'm not used to seeing or living where you're constantly in another person's bed mm. that you're related to. And that could be an element of me being an only child as well. I don't know. But I do have cousins, mm. so I can relate to those cousins' elements in this. But we weren't that close. I think nothing is happening. I think that potential energy is definitely there, though. I think there is a very strong undercurrent of curiosity. It is much less about actual incest. It's much more about going to that family reunion saying, oh, hey, who's that? And someone saying, that's your cousin, dummy. Cool it. I only had one of those cousins, and all the rest of them, uh, one in particular, took out his feeding tube <laughs> in order to clean it out. So not always something I could relate to. But I don't want to derail us further. Okay. It, because these situations happen multiple times in mm -hmm. the film. We're not just talking about one specific scene. No, it really. bubbles constantly. Because there are situations where these lines get gray and where people are sharing partners. We are introduced to Jose, the eldest son of Mecha and Gregorio, and he, we determine, is living and we assume having sex with the character Mercedes, who was actually his father's mistress at one point. And at this point, I think we've met all of the principal characters. And they have been united, and especially when we see Jose and Mercedes, that they're all watching this particular news segment on TV of a possible virgin sighting somewhere out in the hinterlands, it's suggested. And this also was a fascinating glimpse into another culture to me. I cannot imagine something similar happening if I went to turn on the TV right now, seeing something like that. Though, I do remember as a child of the 80s, there being a more prevalent theme of virgins or saints appearing in food products. Do you remember <laughs> that particular period of time? I do. The thing I remember adjacent to this is the satanic panic of the early 80s. As a kid, I could turn on the TV almost any time and see Donahue, Geraldo Rivera, etc., etc., talking about 
satanic cults as if they were a prominent enough feature in every small town that it was a danger we all needed to be aware and cognizant of at all times. So it's not that far-fetched. I guess I just remember a lot of these Virgin Marys or the Shrouded Turins in a tortilla or something. Or on a grilled cheese sandwich. Yeah. But also, I think my grandmother Evelyn got the National Enquirer. So maybe <laughs> maybe that's why that occurs to me a little bit more. Or the Weekly World News, which my friend Willie refers to simply as the news. In the interim, while Mecha is in the hospital, my favorite scene in the whole film happens right here. Oh, what is that? Gregorio comes to Momi, their daughter, to tell her, your mother asked for these things to be brought to her, specific clothing articles, in the hospital. And he goes to the wardrobe. Immediately, I'm thinking, he's going to pull out these things to put them together to take them, like any thoughtful, normal, loving husband would. No, he is getting in there to find something to wear to Carnival. He is finding his fancy pink shirt completely selfish, completely vain, and is doing nothing to help either his wife or his daughter. It completely subverts the viewer's expectations. It's the exact opposite of the cow metaphor because you do not expect it. It is not super obvious. It completely flips what you expect to happen on its head. It's my favorite piece of characterization in the whole film. I have a suggestion for alternative casting for the role of Gregorio. Okay. That would be Harry Dean Stanton. <laughs> also a shorthand for a wreck of a person. Mm. Harry Dean's a little too old now. He I just turned so. 90. Did he? Mm-hmm. Happy birthday, whenever that was. Just last In case week. you're listening, Harry Dean. And we have this telling refrain that keeps coming up every time Mecha comes up in conversation. Poor Mecha. Everyone pities her for the terrible mess that her life has become. Well, that's on one the one hand a big crock of shit, and on the other hand, quite true. Funny you should mention it. Okay. <laughs> because I wrote this down. I noted that often right up until the point that she kicks him out of the bedroom that Mecha is very critical of Gregorio. With good reason. But she bears no blame in this? Is that what you're reacting to or is it something else? Oh, absolutely. Every thing that she is doing is a choice, whether it's a choice made right then or a choice obviously made years earlier and has simply compounded upon itself until she finds herself in the swampy mess that she lives in. I have no sympathy for her whatsoever. We learn that she knew what sort of a man Gregorio was. The suggestion is that he had a lot of girlfriends. By the way, he's the grossest Lothario <laughs> I've ever seen. <laughs> And she clearly didn't have the presence of mind to go in any other route or select any other life for herself, her own identity beyond this. But I could also understand that I'm being quite unfair, that she's possibly limited by societal restraints at the time. Did she have a lot of options? It's very difficult for me, I'm just saying me, to believe that people only have one option. Mm -hmm. It's a false dichotomy that it's either this or nothing. Yes. And going back again to the poor Mitcha, she has a terrible accident at first, but she was drunk when it happened. Mm -hmm. There's some suggestion by the way she moves. I started to think, is there some other pathology happening? Does she have some sort of a neuropathy? Did she have a stroke? But no, she's just a drunken wreck, really. So poor Mitcha, as a refrain, actually from Martel, Mitcha represents... 
this middle-class bourgeois mentality that is content with decay, that doesn't want to try, that is subservient to religion and superstition and all of these class constraints? Is that how this functions when you keep hearing these characters say poor Mecha over and over again? It's more of an indictment than an actual expression of pity or any sort of commiseration? Because we have the three women at a sort of pseudo-triangle. We have Mecha and Tali and Mercedes, each representing some different aspect of this womanhood, as it were. Mercedes represented a lot less, at least on screen time. Yes, but she's this continuing specter. In a little bit, the idea that she's coming to visit, this idea gets floated and it seems like it's kind of terrifying. Mm -hmm. She's the only person who lives on her own, pays her own way. Clearly, even though they might be losers like Gregorio, is constantly with a companion of her choosing. Mm -hmm. And Mecha has accepted no mantle of power except of a passive-aggressive nature. Seems to invoke no sense of logic in her own life to deal with her own medical, psychological problems. Can show no particular affection or discipline to her children. And you employ two housekeepers and the house is a ruin at all times because of your garbage everywhere. It's ridiculous. And any person, this is the most telling to me, besides the ice cubes in the wine, the person who needs that ice so much that they get a little mini fridge installed in their room so they never have to leave it, I don't have any empathy for at that point. All characteristics we learn that she has inherited from her mother, who took to her bed, stayed there for 15 to 20 years and then died, and that she is passing on to Momi. And maybe this is more of my bourgeois mark that I can think so highly of myself in comparison to these characters. But no, they're all fascinating, each one of them. But I don't feel that poor Mecha. You made your untidy bed and you lie in your untidy bed. There is one more brief interlude back in the city before the family fully assembles at the country home where we see Momi and Veronica shopping for a shirt for Jose and we notice that Momi notices Isabel, the young housekeeper, out on the street talking to some boys. And I believe it's actually our first instance of dialogue in the film at the very beginning when Momi says... Thank God for Isabel. Mm. That Isabel is the person she loves most in the world. That's the sense that I get. I think so too. And I'm not clear if it's a romantic love or a familial love or something else even more pure and innocent or all of those things rolled together. I think it's exactly that last thing. I think it's all of those things and more. I think Momi is so beautifully naive and innocent I think it is so significant that at the end, she is the character that goes to see where the virgin is appearing, as she is the symbolic virgin of our story. I think it is complete naivete, wrapped up in infatuation, wrapped up in this inextricable familial bond that you mentioned. This role that the housekeepers play in this family, and in several other stories that we've seen before. Last year, for instance, we saw that excellent film, The Second Mother that all of those lines are so blurred and it's confusing and you are never sure what your position is in relation to the other one. 
I think that is the most fascinating relationship of the whole thing, Momi and Isabel. And if you look at Momi, she's a developing young woman. Mm -hmm. That's why it was a little bit more difficult to get a fix on her age. You can't really go by her body. Or you can. I would guess 15. That seems reasonable. And at the same time, I think that she is still even more stunted than a number of other 15-year-olds would be. I'm saying 15, basing that solely on how I perceive her emotional maturity. I think it's true, though, because she made, she says something about not having a driver's license as mm-hmm. well. So she's definitely in her teen years, but I think that you could look at her and understand that she hasn't had the experiences that a number of other teen girls have had. In the scene that you're talking about when she's watching Isabel with that sense of envy and curiosity and sadness at the same time, and she is continually biting her fingers or her knuckles or she has fingers in her mouth it's very sort of pre-adolescent behavior Mm -hmm. speaking of all these feelings that she conveys can you remember the last time you saw a first-time feature director get such nuanced performances out of an entire cast especially non-professionals in some cases well i'm gonna go back to my initial rant a little bit as well and what struck me the most is again this fighting against the sense of the film is plotless or aimless it's not and i can't remember another person having so clear a vision Mm -hmm. within a film that doesn't hit those standard narrative beats every shot has a distinct purpose every sound has a distinct purpose everything is so composed yet Freeform. That is a perfect segue into us being now back at the country house. They are all assembled as a huge family now, all in one place. And this composition is fascinating because the space that they occupy is so small and so cramped. And yet her camera is never obvious or obtrusive. And it's not this ridiculous handheld that you see nowadays. It's all handheld. But it's so meticulously composed and only hyperactive when it needs to be, when it underlines certain very specific activities. All in service to the performance and the character and the story, because there is one. I'm also going to go off on another rant tangent as well. And this idea of these films nowadays, you know, 2001 wasn't that long ago. Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking of several specific instances Actually, now that I think about it, more around that time than necessarily right now, though there are many from right now as well, but that the camera is used to create a distance between the audience and the character, to me, for no reasonable purpose. I think these folks are thinking that it's an artistic purpose. To me, it feels like navel-gazing, and sometimes literal (laughs) navel-gazing, as opposed to show me what is happening get me into this character, let me see what this actor is doing, rather than this ridiculous, I don't need to see what this moment of this branch of a tree is doing while something really important is happening over here. Now, you could argue with me, oh no, it serves a much more creative artistic purpose. I think sometimes it's just having a conceit Mm -hmm. or a gimmick. You made me think of a couple of things. I should clarify the difference between Handheld and shaky cam. Thank you, yes. I do not mean to conflate the two. The thing you mentioned about having a purpose and what you see, for example, 
the tree branch when you should be looking at something else. The things that happen outside of Lucrecia Martel's frame are so well designed too. In addition to the sound that implies so much, you have things like the scene where Momi jumps into the pool and does not come up for a long time. An uncomfortably long time. We're still looking at the surface of the water as the other characters are not knowing what's happening. The next scene you cut to when they're telling the story that I love of the African rat dog, she's not quite in the frame in the beginning. She's outside the frame and is maintaining this tension for just a little bit. Did anything happen to her? How much time has elapsed? Until we have this sense of relief when she is brought back into the picture. Yes, there is tension constantly created by this framing. I'm thinking about High and Low that we watched recently. The Kurosawa. And that frame is constantly shifting to show the play between the characters at any given moment. And it's so specific. And I feel the same way about this, even though Martel might be using some devices to keep us on edge. It's all earned again. And I want to say again, it's all in service to the character and the story and the atmosphere, as opposed to, I just don't feel like looking over here because I think it's going to be cool. Interesting you bring up high and low because that contrast between what Kurosawa does and what Martel does, while both are excellent at what they're doing, is interesting. In high and low, this composition and this beautiful wide frame that he's got is constantly emphasizing the shifting positions of power and who is driving the story. I think Martel and her camera placement and movement emphasizes the fact that so many voices are competing for attention and she is not focusing on any one in particular. You're seeing so many vantage points that it underlines this brilliant choice she made in the very beginning when she was urged to focus on one or two characters in particular and a more focused storyline. I come back to more of my background, which is in theater. Mm -hmm. And in theater, you don't have any place to hide. You've got to be in character all the time. The audience knows it. And I, I'm thinking again about these certain films, which of course I'm not naming, so that's not helpful, but that I feel like these techniques are used to hide something that's ultimately not interesting to us. It's a gimmick. A diversion. It's an easy diversion. It's an easy trick to do because maybe you can't quite fix on which protagonist you wanted to show at the moment or what you wanted to get out of that scene. Again, could be totally wrong. This is sort of my half-assed film theory, I guess. (laughs) But this film is so purposeful. And moment to moment to moment, I was completely involved in what was going on. And yes, I want to know, wait, where's Momi? Oh, okay, there she is. Now I understand why this was done like this and how this gets called back later and how everything pays off. Mm. If there's no payoff, I don't really know what the point was. I wasn't looking at an art object. So really, in conclusion, I want to see someone's vision, not someone's complete lack of vision and experimentation when they don't quite have the chops to do it. Well, this is an excellent director for that because every one of her features is very specifically her reaction to her upbringing, to the environment she was raised in. And I think in most cases, a rejection of it. It's a really fascinating, very personal body of work. Well, that brings us back, I think, back into this film again, those things that I related to so much in my upbringing. One being 
living in your bathing suit <laughs> the whole summer. You just never change out of it. Well, now that they are all back together at the house, that's what they do. The young kids, anyway, live in their bathing suits, it seems like, for the entirety of this summer. And there is a moment that I briefly alluded to a second ago of world-class cousining that is among my favorites, where Veronica is telling the younger kids this urban legend of this animal that they thought was a dog that after they killed it and took it to the vet, it was determined it was an African rat. That is top flight cousining. It is. If I've ever seen it. And it's very effective because multiple times afterwards you hear Lucci in particular talking about, no, it's the rat. Lucci is absolutely convinced that one of these African rats lives next door to him. And it's very charming at the time. And I'm going to stop right there. <laughs> right here is where we enter into this portion that is a little cycle of many repetitions. Momi sees Isabel go off with Pedro, the young boy again, that she saw her talking to in town. The young boys return to the bog to find the cow still stuck there. They finally put it out of its misery. But only after swinging the rifle around so wildly that you think someone is going to get hurt. There's this constant fear, it feels like, in so many instances in this that disaster is just around the corner. Some horrible accident is about to happen. Because multiple accidents have already happened, including Joaquin, another son, who has lost his eye. So how many more things are going to happen? But there is that constant tension that something, 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 something is going to happen. And it made me think about a story we heard in relation to Boyhood, the mm. Richard Linklater film, where when you watch Boyhood, there are a couple of specific moments where you think, some sort of terrible accident is about to take place, and it's very tense. Is that because of how the shot is framed? You're expecting something to move surprisingly into view? I think so. I think it's how we're trained as an audience, mm -hmm. that if you see a drunk driver and a shaky camera and squealing tires, that something terrible is going to happen. And any of us raised on after-school specials, I guess maybe I'm just talking about myself, have this heightened sense of, Drugs or alcohol are going to lead to something really, really bad. And the director, Richard Linkletter, was talking about that with an interviewer where the interviewer was saying, yeah, I was so concerned that something was going to happen. And he said, yes, we've been trained like this. But if you think about in reality, it doesn't happen that often. We typically do come out of these things more unscathed. There might be a broken arm or something like that, but something more terrible doesn't happen, or usually. Just, or just as frequently, nothing happens. Absolutely. So taking that kind of training of, oh, something terrible is going to happen, and terrible things do happen, but essentially everybody seems to become a little bit more desensitized to them in this family. And the last element of this cycle of repetition is actually occurring in the conversation between Tali and Mecha at this point. You hear Tali repeating phrases a couple of times in this conversation where they're talking about how things are going, how she's feeling, possibly going to Bolivia to get school supplies, and you realize they have nothing to say to each other. Prior to that, before Tali came over, Mecha was saying that she was, in effect, dreading her coming because she would just sit there and talk for hours. <laughs> and yet we see Mecha's just continuing the conversation there's no palpable sense that she's trying to put it to an end again i think of that as her passive aggressiveness well jose brings a little bit of levity 
to this situation. He injects a bit of life, and there's all of a sudden this activity and dancing, and everyone is having fun and not having to have these stultifying conversations for at least a little while. And it's another great example of Martel's camera placement and camera movement. In this tiny room with all of this activity going on, she's giving you just enough of each person's little tiny story that you can stitch together how this is affecting everyone and what it means to all of them. So we run through a series of a few events where it seems like the cultures are intermingling more than we've seen so far. Jose goes into town to Carnival, where he ends up getting in a fight with Pero, Isabel's boyfriend, ostensibly, gets busted in the nose for his trouble, goes home to sleep that off. In the meantime, the girls go with Pero and a group of his friends to the dam to spend an afternoon swimming. And to go back to this fight for just a second, to me, again, it's a lot more blood that suggests this is pretty serious even though it's ultimately not, but he's bleeding profusely and you can't first tell what's happening. I wasn't sure if he was actually stabbed. Mm. And then when we get to the dam, after we learn he's okay, he's just busted up, that this fishing trip slash literally machete fight to get a (laughs) fish, these people are swinging machetes around to catch these fish. And yes, this is a horror movie. There's more blood and guns and knives and emotional abuse. And potential disaster. Than you see in a lot of other movies. So they're leaving the dam after they've dodged the potential disaster of hacking each other's fingers off in pursuit of this catfish. And they toss the fish aside as they're on their way home. Well, and I want to say it's a group of locals, Indians, and members of this family. Mm -hmm. So it's everybody together together. The girls have gotten a ride from these locals down to this dam and getting a ride back. And the family are the ones that have the fish. And the family tosses the fish to the ground saying, no, this is garbage fish, essentially. But eh, just leave it over here because the Indians will eat anything. Another instance of this casual racism and classism that permeates the whole film. And there are several instances specifically in Word, of course, in Deed as well, but in Word where Mecha will constantly refer to the housekeepers as girls, even though one of them is clearly a middle-aged woman. Mm -hmm. And I think back again to racism in this country in earlier days where you would refer to blacks as boy or girl, regardless of their age. Mm -hmm. It was that sort of similar feeling to me. Isabel does pick up the fish, though. She does. She's thrifty and reasonable to And me. serves it to the family who enjoy it. She makes a catfish stew out of it. So suck on it, <laughs> I guess. It's at this dinner where tensions finally come to a head. This is really the first overt argument that takes place. And specifically, Momi is calling out Mitcha for being drunk. Not only that, but also taking to her bed, telling her that she's essentially going to end up like her mother. She's going to do the same thing. Momi is telling Mecha that she is a prisoner of this cycle, implying at least at that point, Momi is self-aware enough to avoid perpetuating that cycle herself, which it turns out is not true. And another instance of taking to the bed at this dinner, Veronica says that she is going to stay in bed 
if Mercedes comes to visit, she's going to stay in bed the whole time until she's gone. So it's, again, the first time that anybody's sort of really saying something overtly and yet using these tricks to take away their own responsibility. They're actually making a statement, standing their ground, but it's to be shitty and hypocritical. Yes. <laughs> and then this third piece, as I saw it, of this overt shift that happens is, as we had alluded to earlier, Mecha tells Gregorio that she wants him out of the bedroom. But she says that someone will come move his things. So it's overt and yet passive-aggressive at the same time. But finally, people speaking their text. The part of this sequence that I enjoyed the most was Mecha's conversation with Tali about Mercedes coming. And how you see this generational, hereditary thing happening with the men as well as the women. You see Gregorio and Jose being involved with Mercedes. You have Mecha specifically saying that Mercedes always had a weakness for losers, meaning her husband, but also happening to catch her son in that net as well. Do you think she specifically knew that she was insulting father and son, or do you think she knows and is just in denial about Jose and Mercedes' relationship? This is Mecha we're talking mm -hmm. about. Oh, gosh. I don't know. I'm thinking specifically about the latter part of that question. Does she understand the true nature of Jose's relationship? She must at some level. And an interesting other facet to that relationship, Mercedes and Jose, is that Mercedes treats him like a lover and a child, which he is. Mm. He's in bed the whole time and not sexy in bed he's <laughs> wrapped up in bed watching tv with his clothes on and she sort of pats him and everything's okay and she orders him around at the same time too but we see how mecha treats jose again implying that this cycle is never going to end we see the way she dotes on him favoring the eldest son therefore perpetuating the patriarchal cycle even as much of a layabout and useless lump as he is, he receives the most preferential treatment of all the children. And I think as well, there's that layer of what truly is the nature of their relationship because he's in bed with her, though you have to see it to understand what in bed means. I mean, they, they could be in different positions and he's clothed, but she's always in her nightgown and sort of patting him. I really don't think at the end of the day anybody has the wherewithal to actually have any sort of a physical relationship anymore, but it's an odd familial relationship to me. Do you agree with that, that there's at least a note of that? Or am I just being too puritanical? I don't think it's a puritanical thing as much as it might just be a cultural thing. It's certainly not how I was raised, but I don't know that a South American audience would find it nearly as peculiar as we do. Good point. I think the end result is he's constantly infantilized. The big question I had for you that I wrote down in huge block letters, do you think these women ended up anywhere near where they thought they would? I'm going to cheat and say yes and no. If You were the worst they, about this. I am. If they fall into this false dichotomy of they only have one choice or nothing, then yes, they wound up exactly where they thought that they would. I want to 
jump ahead for a second and look at Tali and Raphael, Tali's husband's relationship. He is very involved in his family, very alert, clearly the breadwinner. Good father. Good father. And yet their relationship, though warm, seems to be pretty stifling to me as well. And I have a specific example of that. We see them play this game over this trip to Bolivia that Tali and Mecha have been talking about to possibly buy these school supplies, where he doesn't say, no, don't go, but gives reasons why he doesn't think that she should or sets up these sort of obstacles for her to do this. And she doesn't specifically say, can I go? Or why won't you let me go? She plays into this as well. And she does these passive aggressive things like, when he is a little bit more clear about we don't have the papers for this or something like that, she breaks a light bulb Mm -hmm. in another room and kind of sheepishly is smoking a cigarette that he doesn't see until he walks in to discover what this noise was. That's the extent of her protest. That's the extent of her protest. And then the extent of his protest is he just goes out and buys the supplies unbeknownst to her. And then everything's done and finished. Now you don't need to go. We don't even have to talk about it. Exactly. And they don't specifically. So I talked about those three instances of the overt yet passive aggressive arguments that people are having at the country house. And then this long con that the two of them, Tali and Raphael, are engaged in over this trip to Bolivia. So we spoke earlier about the triangle of these three women. And Tali chose the route of the safer choice. The man who wasn't the Lothario that Gregorio is. And yet, if she doesn't have her own identity or career, I guess, is maybe the word that I'm looking for, what else would she be expecting? Again, I'm talking about this from a completely different culture and a completely different time. So maybe again, I am speaking from my high horse and saying they could go in different directions. Maybe they couldn't have. But... If Mecha looks at what happened to her mother, it seems like she didn't protest so strongly or set this entirely different course to not end up exactly like her. And if Tali chose the safe alternative and stayed in this town, it's going to go a specific way. And Mercedes struck out on her own and chose the losers, yet is never without a companion. So happily ever after. (laughs) Happily ever after. The three choices that you have. Drunk, mom, whore. I think that triumvirate is a great example of how Lucretia Martel is being political without being political. I love how she is not overtly political, but at the same time she is surgically ripping this middle class to shreds this portrayal of this limbo their either inability or their unwillingness and the only thing approaching a symbol of life vitality future hope is in isabel is in the person who is considered a second class citizen a non-entity and it's not stated overtly, but the implication is that Isabel is pregnant. Oh, it's stated pretty overtly, I feel like. The discussion that she has that you don't hear with Pero that Momi observes. But again, very important, no one ever says it. That to me is mm. what is the most interesting part of it. Nobody ever says it. 
And so she has to make the decision that she's got to leave. And of course, Momi is gutted. While not fully understanding, I think. Again, because Isabel hasn't told her, I don't know if Momi is actualized enough to have figured it out. I'm sure she will at some point. At some point. But for right now, she's just euphemistically going to her sisters. Yes. We see, again, yet another of the limited choices available. Isabel is very young and is pregnant, so life is now, to me, in her situation, determined. I don't see her having unlimited options from this point. In my heart, I know that's the case, and yet somehow, for me, a budding life is still enough potential for me to think that that is not locked in place completely the way these other people are. Wow. So I've just rambled on incessantly about how I think people have more choices available, yet they are unwilling, as you mentioned, to do anything about it. And now I'm saying she's really got no other place to go. (laughs) (laughs) And you're saying, no, it's the future president of Argentina. No, I see it that way because when you look at the rest of the film, where do you see any of the other instances of celebration or life or excitement? You see it in the lower classes, even with the crushing economic pressures that they are facing, even with second class citizen status, they seem somehow to enjoy their lives more and have more of a sense of vitality than the middle class, the leisure class does, because the leisure class, to me, like I mentioned, is nearly dead. They are nearly comatose all the time. I don't know. That idea... Okay, and this is a nascent idea that I'm having based on very minimal reading. So again, I could be wildly off base, but that strikes me a little bit more of the attitude of earlier Argentinian cinema. And you see that in other cultures as well, but that poverty is somehow ennobling and enriching, which I do not think it is. I think of Isabel's pregnancy in this case as just more of a symbol than an actual event to be dealt with. I think of it okay. the same way I think of, say, springtime as an idea. I'm not thinking of it as a concrete struggle that she will have to go through. I think that that's some beautiful poetry in your head. <laughs> and I'm thinking of what the actress is doing, which is weeping and shaking, and she looks terrified. So it doesn't seem that great to me. I would say you've convinced me, but I don't want to let go of that hope. That's okay. (laughs) And we'll get to that same idea here in just a minute as well. And so we've arrived at your favorite scene in the movie. You son of a bitch. (laughs) I'm really interested in the thread that runs through this film where physical damage is meted out to the male characters, where it's the psychological damage for the most part, aside from Mecha's cuts, that is administered to the female characters. So far, for the male characters, you've got Martin, who's got the huge scratches on his face, Joaquin missing an eye, Jose's busted nose, and now we have little Lucci climbing the ladder to peek over the garden wall. Let me step back for just a second. Lucci is the cutest thing you've ever seen in the world. <laughs> He's such a charming, sweet little guy, and he's so worried about the African rat throughout this. May I quibble with you for just a moment, though, about these punishments meted out? I'm going to put Isabel's pregnancy 
back in there too. So okay. the women are not coming out unscathed in this, but I do absolutely get your point. Sorry, I didn't want to move on before no, I mentioned I see, that. I see what you mean. Little Lucci. But yes. is that just our non-child having bias that, that we I mean, look at the worst is thing. the worst punishment. <laughs> a fate closer to death. Right. Rather than it being a miracle and a blessing. Yeah. That's our good, bias. Good point. As good opposed point. to what's actually being portrayed. I get you did mention she is shaking and terrified and very afraid and And the father to be isn't excited about it no. either. I think you still may be giving away a little bit of a bias by okay. describing it that way. Quite quite true, quite true. So anyway, we have my beloved little Lucci. He has been obsessed with this dog next door who's really loud and aggressive, barking. And he is climbing this ladder that Tally has put against the wall. But she's put a table in front of it in order to keep the kids off of it. Because it's a pretty high ladder going to sort of peek over the edge of this wall that they share with this house adjacent to check on this dog. He slips under the table, starts to climb the ladder, and he falls off. He falls and dies. Now, I wasn't sure if he was dead. I yelled at you when it <laughs> happened. But it's not immediately clear. I mean, there's no sort of signposts, as you had mentioned, of a flat line or something like that. Or his eyes or a still close open. Up or, mm -hmm. Yeah. We see him from far away. There's no noise. The family isn't alerted to it at that moment. We just see his body, which is at odd angles. But again... I want to harken back to the parallel I was talking about before to Boyhood, where this movie constantly has traumatic things happening. And right up until that point, I had almost kind of breathed that sigh of relief of, oh, okay, we got through all of those things. That's it. End of movie. And then the twist is here. Unlike in real life, where you might just see a broken arm, he's actually dead. Which really sucks. <laughs> it's really terrible. I love this little guy. I got really invested in him. And it's the innocent who is taken in this film. Not the people who arguably may have done more to merit something more treacherous happening to them. It's the little innocent. To me, it is, with an exclamation point, Lucretia Martel throwing off this Catholicism that she was raised in. This idea that everyone is going to be saved by divine will, that there's a plan, that God loves you. She describes in an interview her idea of divine abandonment. And this is that in capital letters. Leaving every creature, everything, to its own luck. I do want to point out, however, when we watched this, this was my first time watching it, you had seen it before, you did say that you didn't think Lucci was dead. Now I feel like you just said that in order so I wouldn't need to be told that Santa Claus exists. Initially, I wondered. Initially, I was not sure because of the other things I mentioned. All of the other instances where one of these boys was hurt was never fatal. They're maimed. They are severely injured, but none of them to where they wouldn't recover. In retrospect, though, seeing everyone's reaction in the denouement of this, where Jose can't quite bring himself to call Tally, where Veronica is on the phone and it's just ringing, 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 
None of those things imply to me that he's hurt, but he's going to be okay. All of those cinematic signposts are of finality. And now afterwards, having read more about it, yes, it is very clear that he's dead. And still, uh, I'm going to take a page from your book, and I'm just going to pretend like he got out of it okay. okay. He had a broken arm and a good story for later on. That's what I'm going to stick with. He saw the African rat dog. It was really scary. It tried to gnash his arm. It tried to rip his arm out of its socket, and he came away with a big old bruise. Yeah. Okay. I like that story. That's what I'm going to go with. So we have one last scene to talk about before it goes to those credits. And it's actually the scene that we opened the show with where Momi has come back to the house after she has gone to see the Virgin and there was nothing there. There was nothing to be seen. If you didn't understand how Martel feels about religion before now, you cannot mistake her position anymore. The final thing I have to say is thanks for nothing and screw you <laughs> to you, Cole Rolaine. That's not fair because you know this thing was beautiful. It was. I am delighted that I got to watch it. But why did you get so inspired to watch this for this episode? I love this movie. I, like you, really responded to the totality of her vision I was so impressed when I saw this the first time. Austin Film Society did a series of new Argentinian films back in 2008. And I saw it one time then. And until Criterion released this just a little while ago, I hadn't seen it in the interim, but I thought about it all the time. I thought about how incredible it sounded and what it made me feel like this oppressive, humid decay. This question about how an entire society can feel like what is there to do except lay around like fruit rotting on a vine? It looks amazing. It sounds amazing. Their performances, I cannot say enough about how natural and easy and impressive the performances are in it. Yeah, I've been thinking about it for eight years since I saw it one time, probably at least once a week. And at some point you started plotting when you were going to show it to me and dash my little heart and <laughs> break it on the rocks. Which is also a great segue for me into recommendations because my recommendation is watch her next film. My recommendation this time is Lucretia Martel's The Holy Girl from 2004, which also takes place in La Cienega, the city, and stars Mercedes Moran again, Tali from this film, and Maria Alce, who is another young girl like Momi in that she's on the cusp of this sexual awakening and self-discovery, she is interfered with, which is their euphemism for sexual harassment in this case, at the hands of a doctor who is at a conference at the hotel where she lives with her mother. And this sets off a chain of events that allows her to begin to come to terms with her sexuality and all of its implications, the power involved, the vulnerability involved, sexuality is cultural currency, all with this backdrop of Catholicism again. It's really fascinating. A little more direct, not as obtuse as La Cienega is, but I don't think it suffers either one. It's kind of an apples and oranges thing. Her entire catalog of features is excellent. I say just start with La Cienega, go to the Holy Girl, 
and onto the headless woman in order. I believe I've been called a cheat before for recommending another film in the director's body of work. But in this case, I entirely agree with you, and I, I can't wait to watch them. I never call you that. I think you did twice in this episode alone. <laughs> what is your recommendation? I'm going to tell a little story, okay. as I often do in these cases. I was delighted to find this when I was looking around for what I wanted to recommend. I had a couple of other ideas about matriarchal films focusing on matriarchal... I had a couple of ideas about films face... Did you have a couple of ideas about films focusing on matriarchal issues? Versus patriarchal issues. Though this film is so blurry, it doesn't really feature one or the other. So I sort of set that aside. And I was looking around at other Argentinian film, of which I have very limited knowledge. And then I discovered this little gem. Now, let's go back 31 years to my 10th year. Of life? Of life. I was a devotee of Siskel and Ebert, and I would get very excited about the things that I saw reviewed and start to be able to search for those things on my own. My family was going to the beach for a week in the summer, and it was perfect VHS time. And they said, hey, what should we go rent? And I said, Apartment Zero <laughs> from 1988 which is an Argentinian British political thriller. Now, I was really excited when I saw this review. I was excited to get it. It felt so adult and it blew my family's mind and it has gotten into our family folklore and they still make fun of me. I'm now almost 41 years old and I will never live down to them that I wanted to rent apartment zero. Because you were the little 10 year old weirdo. And when you say it blew their mind, you mean it bored them to tears. I think it's both. Have you seen it? Yes. Okay. I'm not saying it's boring. I'm saying they were not ready for it. Yeah. I may be too weird while they <laughs> slumped over a desk, quite possibly. But I am specifically recommending this film, number one, to make you laugh. Number two, for any 10-year-old listening to this podcast out there <laughs> who will go blow their own family's minds with something that they are not ready for. But anyway... This was actually written and directed by Argentinian-born screenwriter Martin Donovan. Not the Martin Donovan that you may be thinking of. Not who's the an American Hartley. actor. No. Different Martin Donovan. Starring Hart Bachner and Colin Firth. And in 1988, it was at that time set in modern-day Buenos Aires. And it centers around the relationship between two emotionally crippled roommates. Colin Firth is the owner of a local movie house that is losing money very quickly. Hart Bachner is a mysterious new roommate who appears to be hiding some sort of a secret. Now, I haven't seen this since 1988 when we got it, but I can't wait to watch it again. I think I saw it at around the same time. I checked it out from Showbiz Video in Stillwater, Oklahoma, my favorite video store of all time. I've since used other video stores that have a much wider selection and are much more impressive, but this one holds a place in my heart because it always had the weird little back room where people like you and I could go find these movies that no one else wanted to check out, and that little room was where I first found Apartment Zero. Absolutely. And I now realize, looking at the date, I was probably 13, but I still blew their minds and I'll just stick with my made-up family folklore at this point. So once again, two terrific recommendations. 
The Holy Girl from 2004, also directed by Lucrecia Martel, and from 1988, Apartment Zero. And that brings us to the end of episode 25. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can reach us via email at magiclanternpodcast at gmail.com. We are on Instagram and Facebook. You can just search for our name in either of those venues. We are on Twitter at lantern underscore cast. I wanted to say thanks this time to everyone who has either shared links to the show or given us feedback since the last episode. The gentlemen at Fuds on Film, as always, our stalwarts, Grindhouse Dave and Jeff Duncanson, Micah Matson, Aaron West and Mark Herney from Criterion Close-Up, Charlie Fulton, the Movie Geek cast, Leanne Kubich, Matteo Boscarol, George Eduardo, Tim Lego, Jane Sankner, and special thanks to Travis Trudell, who actually went to the trouble of creating a spreadsheet for us to keep track of all the films that we have discussed and will discuss in the future on the show. Thanks, Travis. We appreciate that a whole lot. What I'm waiting for now, the next step, fan art. I cannot wait for our first instance of how people depict us as you might if you were a caricaturist on the boardwalk. Please don't put me in roller skates, but (laughs) if you want to do one of me making out with Glenn Ford, A-okay with me. (laughs) We are on iTunes and Stitcher Radio if you are interested in tracking us down there. And if you could take a couple seconds to leave us a rating or review on either of those services, we would certainly appreciate it. We're on Google Play for you Android users. And finally, you can find all of our episodes, including supplemental material, at our website, magiclanternpodcast.com. And thank you for listening to the Magic Lantern Podcast. 